I did feel out on the fringe in the last states. And this states, I feel more a body, a part of the majority as opposed to the minority. Did you not enjoy your first term in the states then? I haven't enjoyed my time in the states full stop. Six years. I don't particularly like being a deputy. I don't enjoy it. My wife, uh, on virtually a weekly basis, asks me, what the hell am I doing? Welcome to the Bailiwick Express podcast. My name is Matt Fallows. The Express team will be joined each week by a guest for a series of podcasts. Each will shine a light on topics from across the Bailiwick. The format will change week to week. We'll have debates, reviews, hot seat interviews and special guests. So stick with us as we discuss some of the most important topics we in the Bailiwick face. Politics is about policy and decision making, but it is driven by characters. Deputy Karl Meerveld is undoubtedly a character of Guernsey politics. Outspoken, controversial and combative a divider of opinion, to some in touch with the public like few of his colleagues, to others an insufferable showman. In this state's term, he is also at the centre of many of the biggest debates inside government. I sat down with Deputy Meerveld for an in-depth conversation about his life in politics. So your, your most recent high-profile intervention in, 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 the states, in a state's debate was over sexual offences legislation. Now, this is quite a technical area. It concerned shifting the evidential burden of proof from the alleged victim to the alleged perpetrator. What I think is very interesting is that you haven't spent a lot of time on social policy in your years in the States. And the amendment that you proposed um, to delay that aspect of the legislation in the end was quite heavily defeated. And you would also have known, and you've written a little bit about this already, that it would have been quite provocative to some, even to some victims of uh, sexual assault, particularly um, women who who make up the the highest proportion. So given all of those things, why did you decide to take such a high profile stance on that issue? Because somebody had to. So I pointed out actually in my speech, I said this is a lose-lose from a political perspective because just simply proposing it, I was going to attract a lot of criticism and, and, and flack. And even if I won the amendment on the basis that I was saying, look, this hasn't been given proper consideration, it's a unique provision, and we need to look at it and give it the same degree of scrutiny, analysis and consultation as other sections of the law, is what my argument was. And we're only talking about four lines of text out of 117 pages. But I, as I said to the Assembly, even if I win this debate, I lose in the eyes of the public because I will take a lot of criticism. I doubt very much that people will understand the issues and be championing my position outside of the public domain. And I might be vindicated in the Assembly but I'm not going to win the public domain. That, from my perspective, if we think there is something going ahead that has significant issues, which may be a problem for the island or individuals in the island in the future, then I see it as our duty to stand up and be counted and raise that issue. Now, whether you can convince the Assembly that that is the case and they support you or not, it doesn't matter. You have an obligation. And I was approached by De- Deputy Dyke, who chairs the, obviously, of eminent lawyer and chairs the 
a legislative review committee with this issue at the time and said, Carl, this is, this is really bad. You know, there's a lot of bad implications with this. We need to raise it. And I explained to him that it was a, a political lose-lose, but we both agreed that we should do it. Did you think the amendment would win or at least would secure more votes than it did? Because it was quite heavily defeated, wasn't it? It was 24-9, I think, at the end. Uh, I think the um, there were several factors that contributed to it going much further. I, uh, As you know, I run my numbers. So I was, expecting, I was expecting 16 or 17 votes. I know that three of the people who left the room had to leave the room at 5.30 because we ran late. Uh, we're going to vote in favour of it. Some people who said they were going to vote in favour of it didn't. I suspect that um, Deputy Furbrush's intervention swayed people's opinions, so I think that uh, biased the debate. The other issue was that Several of the people who wanted to speak after the 5.30, because quite a lot of people stood up and said that they wanted to speak, about seven or eight people. Uh, they actually said in their speeches, I had more to say, but um, I'm cutting it short because I can see everybody's tired and they want to go home. So things that would have been said um, in support of the amendment, which may well have swayed votes, weren't said. Uh, so I think that also didn't help. I think if we if people had slept on it overnight, also if I had had a, the opportunity overnight to come back with some examples of why some of the um, uh, red herrings um, uh, should be viewed as such, then I think it may well have been a different outcome if it had gone overnight, but it didn't. So we live with what we've got and and we see what happens in the future. You talked about running your numbers uh, and and I and I know exactly what you mean. Trying to work out uh, what the balance of support or opposition is on a proposal that's going to the states. Th- there is a view that has, has been put to me that the the role that you play in in the current states, you're president of the states assembly and constitution committee, but in the life of the assembly, is similar to the role of a a chief whip, <laughs> and that uh, you spend quite a lot of your time trying to uh, cajole other members or encourage other members uh, to vote um, in, in, in a way that, that you know, is, is consistent with your beliefs. Is, is that the case? Do you feel that that is a role that you've well, developed in uh, the States? It, it, if it is a role I've developed, I'm not very good at it, <laughs> as, as, is, as is evidenced by the outcome of the last debate. Uh, no, it's not. You know, if I've got something I'm passionate about, something I believe in, I will go out and try and convince other members to support me, obviously. Uh, But I don't organise group gatherings. I don't, uh, uh, you know, set up email groups and control people or, you know, try and orchestrate to that degree. And uh, not to as much as other people I know of. So uh, I would say no. But yes, I think as you, you would yourself admit, if I'm passionate about something... It's no holds barred. I fight and I, I, I fight hard for what I believe in. And I will, of course, try and bring other members with me because, as you know, we have a consensus government. You need 21 votes or at least the majority in the room at the time to be able to carry anything. So it's up beholden on the individual deputy. If they are passionate about something, they need to be able to find allies and bring them with them. I want to talk to you about consensus government a little later because you're sitting on the the review of the machinery of government. Yes. But we served in the previous states together uh, and you obviously have um, first-hand knowledge of the current states. 
Are you able to compare and contrast the two assemblies that you have sat in now as a member with nearly six years' experience? Um, they had different, different characteristics. So I would have said that the last assembly was probably, on average, more left of centre, if, you, if you're trying to look at the political spectrum. It was probably slightly left of centre, and it was more focused on uh, social issues, social agenda, uh, and things like that. This assembly is probably slightly right of centre. Uh, and, and remember, when I, when I use these comparisons, we don't have fascists and communists in Guernsey. You don't have extremes. We have an island that is moderate by nature, by its, by its character. Um, but I would say this one's slightly more business-like. You've got a, a state that's more focused on, on, I think, physical delivery of policies such as the tax issues, etc. You know, trying to uh, 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 deliver th- uh, more tangible things, whereas the previous state was much more into intellectualising social issues, etc., and bringing forward legislation and rules, etc., to deal with that. Do you feel more comfortable in, in this state as a result of that change? Put it this way, it suits my personality because that's why I put myself. I put myself in the liberal right of centre category. Um, so I, I, I suppose it suits my approach. And and I've got... Um, I, I did feel out on the fringe in the last states. And this states, I feel more a body, a part of the majority as opposed to the minority. Did you not enjoy your first term in the states then? I haven't enjoyed my time in the states full stop. Six years. I don't particularly like being a deputy. I don't enjoy it. My wife, uh, on virtually a weekly basis, asks me, what the hell am I doing? I came into the States very late from an intervention by fran- friends and family who persuaded to stand, me to stand, literally put my application in the day before uh, applications closed in 2016. I wrote my manifesto in the first week of the uh, of the um, uh, election period. And it, what my... Le- Manifesto wasn't even printed until after the deadline for postal responses came in. That's how late I joined and how little interest I, I had in being a deputy per se. I, it's one something I aimed for. It's not something I pursued. It's something I got persuaded to do. I don't regret having stood. I, 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 I'm grateful for being returned. Um, and I did it because... I, I, I was concerned about some of the ways that the island was developing and I wanted to stand up and be counted. And that's what keeps me going now. But do I enjoy it? Is it like a hobby to me? Is it something I would I would miss if it wasn't there? And the answer is no. That's very interesting. Did you come close then to not standing again in 2020? No. I, I, I went into 2020 determined to stand again because... You know, the kind of change I wanted to see happening hadn't happened in the first term. Also... And this is as true of this estates as well. When we say with this estates, how its character is and what it's functioning compared to the last one, we're just coming out the honeymoon period. We're just coming out the early days when the 50% new members are just starting to learn really what the job is and how the states functions and how different it is from my perspective. When I joined, I thought states would work more like a company. The reality is it can't. There are, you know, it it functions in a totally different way with a much broader range of deliverables to each individual. In fact, government means something different to everybody. And and not only that, changes during the course of their life, whereas their expectations, demands and needs change. So I've I've now accepted that government can't be like a business. And I'm sure we'll touch on this when we talk about executive government. Um, 
and I've come to the conclusion, I hadn't, I, 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 in the first time I'd acquired an understanding of how the mechanism works, I'd identified the issues that were dear to me and conclusions hadn't been reached. So when I went into the 2020 election, I went in with a with a determination to stand and try and be re-elected, but also an acceptance in the campaign I ran that I might not be, and very nearly wasn't. I want to talk about that campaign because you ran ultimately a successful campaign and certainly a striking election campaign, uh, full-page adverts, uh, lots of activity on, on, on parts of social media. So you, you certainly uh, you were a, a very prominent uh, easily distinguished candidate, but you will be aware that it was a very unorthodox campaign. Oh, it's a negative. Campaign. It was a very provocative campaign, and that's a, an honest assessment because it was a, a negative campaign. I, in my campaign, do, I never do, asked do, anybody to vote for me. Do you? <laughs> do you? Not. Do you regret that at all? Do you? Do you think there is a danger that though it was successful and you were returned to the states, do you think there there is a danger? There was a danger that that type of campaign potentially debases or devalues politics in the island? I think it is a natural development, because if you look at the worldwide, that is the standard, it's the norm, it's not the exception. It was exceptional by Guernsey standards, and, and very much my campaign was a case of don't vote, I, I, don't, I don't mind if you vote, I, I'm not asking you to vote for me, just don't vote for them, kind of approach. And... I was willing to give up my position and knew very well that by doing that campaign, I probably was going to jeopardise it. Now, I would have liked uh, to think that I would have come around the middle of the pack if I'd have run a standard campaign. By running a negative campaign targeting a specific group, whoever's voting for that group weren't going to vote for me. And a whole load of people didn't like the idea of a negative campaign weren't going to vote for me. So I was going to lose a large block of votes potentially. But anyway, as I say... So why did you do that? Because I hadn't enjoyed that first term, I thought uh, that left-leaning states was taking Guernsey down the wrong route. I, I didn't want to serve another four years in that in that same environment. I wanted this more business-like states with a more right-of-centre approach, and was willing to risk my position to try and make sure that came about. And we didn't have a block vote of a more left. Uh, 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 leaning states taking us down a route that I'd already seen and I, I didn't uh, didn't like and didn't think was appropriate for Guernsey. In my opinion, you've got to remember that those people obviously would have a totally different view, um, but in my opinion. But I was willing to, uh, as with this latest um, um, uh, sexual offences ordinance amendment, I am as an individual, it's me, my personality. I, I don't back away from fights. If I believe in something, I go for it, regardless of the cost, to me personally. A lot of your criticism at the 2020 general election was directed at Deputy St-Pierre, who had been president of the Policy and Resources Committee. Now, we had spent quite a long time di disagreeing over policy issues in, in the previous states, but I always felt that... Uh, on a personal level, if, if there was an issue that we agreed on, we would have said that and we'd have ended up on the same side of the argument. But it always felt to me as if you had a more visceral distaste for the way that Deputy St-Pierre led, in, in quotation marks, the previous states. And I think you were active 
in subsequent to the 2020 general election in, in, in trying to promote Deputy Furbrush's candidature against Deputy St-Pierre. Have I characterised it correctly that although you, you may spend most of your time on policy issues, that, that there, there was a very visceral personality clash with Deputy St-Pierre, which has characterised the way politics has developed in recent years in Guernsey? Um, you know, you're actually wrong. Um, I, 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 since the 20... Right. You and I were on different sides of policy. But I think you and I could actually be friends. I respect your intellect, I respect your political ability. Although we were fighting tooth and nail half the time in the States. The same with Deputy St-Pierre. Um, I had lunch with him at the last, uh, the last States meeting. I went for lunch with him and he was sitting next to me uh, along with a group of other deputies. I accepted an invitation from Sasha and went along with very much kind of Gavin's group. Uh, and had lunch with him. Uh, he and I have cooperated where I actually recommended to um, the cannabis industry that they bring in Deputy Saint-Pierre because of his positions previously and that he would be a better man than me to front that and I've cooperated and gone to meetings with him etc on that. So whilst I, I, I like to think and I would hope that all deputies could do this the disagreements on policy in the Assembly should not affect your personal respect and and attitude towards the individual. And when you leave that room, you leave the politics behind. And after once you leave that room, I, 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 Deputy St. Pierre's had a couple of drunk, uh, invited people to drinks functions. I go along and I will stand there and have a perfectly reasonable chat with him. So we try and leave. Yes, it's sometimes, sometimes when you're in the thick of a, a vicious fight over, over, over a matter of policy that you vehemently disagree on it's sometimes hard to distance yourself but I certainly try to do that myself and I hope that other deputies would do that as well because that's a professional thing to do. Is there a division in this states though between those deputies who uh, were for example members of the Guernsey party the deputies who campaigned on the side of a van the deputies who appear to be in what you describe it as a right of centre uh, slightly conservative kind of coalition and then Deputy St Pierre's group the Guernsey Partnership of Independence is is that a real division in this assembly or do you think if it if it looks like that from the outside that is perhaps mischaracterizing it um it's interesting i would say that the Partnership of Independence group, which of course is no more as a party formally, is probably more cohesive than the centre and the right, which um, I actually spoke to, um, we'll touch on executive government, I was speaking to um, uh, Deputy Furbrush about this and I said it's ironic. The centre and the right probably favour by majority executive government, but not the one to be led or cooperate closely, whereas the people who are left to centre actually cooperate very closely and will be led on policies and work together on it, yet most of them would not favour executive government. And there's an irony there. And, and that, I would say, is the reality. The centre is more amorphous. It doesn't work as a group. Now, my, I suppose one of my angst last term was the fact that there seemed to be a secret party in operation right from the beginning of the term that wasn't public. Now, the fact is I favour parties. I want to see parties develop. 
My hope is that Guernsey will evolve into party systems because I think that creates more accountability to the electorate. People have to stand behind their manifestos, as some of the people in the Guernsey party are currently struggling with. You, you have to present yourself with key objectives you want to deliver. You need to stand up and deliver those and do your very best to do so and be held accountable if you don't. And I would like to see it move. Do I want to see a, a, a US or UK system with bipolar systems? No. I would much rather see a European type system where you have half a dozen different small groupings of deputies, some who are green, some who are, um, uh, a, you know, women to win type issues, uh, some right to centre, left to centre, etc. And, and they have to form a coalition government and each one of those groups has an agenda they try to pursue and they keep the rest on track by moderating them, saying, well, actually, you can't go to the extremes of what you want to do because the rest won't support you. And that's the kind of thing. But I think the reason I like party politics is because the manifesto starts to have real meaning whereas in the past manifestos didn't and people were elected on personality I don't want to see people elected on personality I want to see them elected on their policies and then re-elected on their ability to deliver those policies rather than personality so I don't think personalities has helped us I think going forward it needs to be policy-based elections and to the extent that parties have developed and may develop in the future in a sense, it all started with you because you formed the Islanders Association, which was the first group uh, openly in recent to, times. In, in, in I think Deputy Roffey was part of a group uh, back before the year two thousand. There was certainly a Guernsey Labour group that, that stood candidates, um, but I think I think that was some decades ago. But but in any event, you started uh, the Islanders Association, and they were the first group which openly in in recent times looked like uh, a party and, and openly spoke in, in those sorts of terms. Uh, but there was a slightly Python-esque period, wasn't there, where yes. that party divided quite early and another party, Deputy Furbrush and some others formed another party. Uh, do, do, you, do you regret forming the Islanders Association? And do you think it was not a success in the sense that you ended up not fielding any candidates uh, at the last general election. I, I certainly regret that it didn't make it to the election and field candidates in, in the form that I originally wanted because none of the parties that have formed so far, not one of them, other than the Islanders, is, in my opinion, structured the right way, bottom up instead of top down. And I'll explain that in a second. But the Islands Association, when its first objective and the thing that it was formed uh, almost around was con con uh, contesting the referendum for island-wide voting. And in that, it was successful. And, um, and I think that was an indication of what is to come. But I think part of the issue is this... this uh, the independence of deputies, the, the, we don't have a traditional party system. It's hard to structure them. And when I say the right, right sort of parties, my idea of a party is not a group of people getting together saying, let's join together on a manifesto and attract votes. My idea of a party is 150, 200 people signing up to a group and the manifesto being voted on and dictated by the party and then the candidates saying yes we agree to support that manifesto supported by the masses so it's a bottom-up process instead of a top-down and what we've seen so far the islanders was going to go in that direction if it, it has survived through to the election the what we've seen in the other parties so far they're top-down but what we need to have is groups of people saying say for instance the environmental lobby forms a group and you get 100 200 people to say 
we want more representation in the states. We want our our specific uh, interests to be given a higher profile. Therefore, we'll vote candidates who stand on that specific mandate and hope to attract enough votes to get some candidates in, who will then spend the term making sure that, besides the general policy, they will make sure that that specific interest is is highlighted and, and kept on the agenda. The Islanders Association, as you say, led the campaign for island-wide voting. That was undoubtedly a success in in voting terms, uh, but didn't stand any candidates at the election. But you did have quite a lot of members at one time for for an organisation with a standing start. And you also raised quite a lot of money Mm. at one point. Now, you'll know there has been some discussion about funding of political parties. So... I have to ask you this, where did all that money go? How, well, how much money was raised initially and what was it spent on? Well, I'd have to look back at the uh, numbers. I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but it was a significant amount of money. Um, uh, the, it was spent on, on the branding and the creating the organisation, etc. and all that lead in to uh, hopefully creating something bigger and better. Uh, so, uh, yes, I didn't make any profit out of it. I came out of pocket out of the experience. But therefore, that begs the question, for parties to be embedded in Guernsey politics, does it take quite a lot of money, actually? Is, if we head in that direction, uh, are we it, making you, it harder you, for independent if, candidates ah, to do it see, that, without funding? That's, that's the interesting question. What happens to the independent in this process? Because, first of all, You've got to uh, have a situation where the, you've got to get the public to adopt parties and principles of parties. And I don't think the public's quite there yet. Um, so I, I'm hoping that that will happen over time. If you're establishing parties and running them properly and you want a properly organised uh, organisation, you almost need to have onboard staff, you know, uh, you know, part-time. Now, you might have volunteers, etc., but these need to be costed, certainly in our election mechanism. So you would have to... Uh, there is a certain amount of cost and, and, and ongoing um, expenditure that would be required to form a party and make it really effective. If you look at the Labour Party and the Conservatives or the Republicans and the Democrats, they are vast organisations with serious resources. Now, Guernsey obviously is never going to have organisations of that size. We physically aren't big enough. But all those organisations will be have to be funded. But then, of course, you get into the issue of how much money do you spend at election? How do you separate out election spending and make sure that they're not buying the election? Then you have the issue of whether or not um, an individual is being massively disadvantaged because they don't have the reach of an organisation, etc. In other words, they're placed in the invidious position of saying, I would love to stand to represent my island. I don't really agree with any of the parties wholeheartedly, but I have to join one to get entry. And and that you might get to that stage eventually, and and that's when I, I I suppose I would be the one saying, hmm, maybe we should have one person per parish or something. Maybe we should look at some mechanism to keep the parish involvement and but also allow an individual to stand and still get in without having to sign up to a party first, because you don't necessarily want to lock individuals out, but you do want to make the manifesto have value. And, 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 and I think there's a tricky balance there that even I would go back and say, hmm, these are a mechanism to allow that independent to come in and form themselves a name, get a reputation, get a standing, get recognition. 
without having to go through a party mechanism because the parties themselves can become restrictive and a block to people getting to election. And I fully recognise that. It will be interesting to see how it develops. Just very quickly, although you are a believer in, in principle in parties, I believe you're not in a party at the present time. Is, is that right? That's right. I mean, again... And are you looking to well, form one? Are you working on, on the development of a party? Not right now, but it's certainly something I would consider getting nearer to the next election. Again, one of the reasons I couldn't be part of a party, I couldn't have run my campaign as I did, with the honesty that I did, and with the directness and, let's be honest, negativity that I did, uh, as a part of a group because I couldn't ask a group to sign up to that. So again, I had to stand as an independent at that stage to take that tack. You might at the next election then but stand the next election, le- leading I, I, a party I would, or in I, a party. I would definitely be open to the idea of, of being part of a group, because I think that long term, as I say, the idea of multiple groups representing different segments of our society. So instead of standing at an individual saying on a manifesto, this is what I stand for, but oh, once I'm in, I can't deliver it because of consensus government. I would want, like to see groups of people saying we'll work together for these common deliverables that the pu- public have signed off on and we'll be held accountable at the next election on whether we have delivered them or been seen to at least fight for them. I want to take you back to the first states meeting after the 2020 general election which was the election of committee presidents and committee members. You stand for the presidency of the States Assembly and Constitution Committee against uh, Deputy Lyndon Trott, 20 plus years experience, former Chief Minister, former Treasury Minister. And you have come 38th out of the 38 elected candidates, which, which is in a sense is irrelevant because once you're elected, you're elected. Uh, but not only did you prevail in that election, you beat him by something to, like 26 to votes to 13, yeah, to, two, right, two, two to, one. to one margin. That surprised me, not necessarily that you succeeded in that it election. It surprised but the me margin too. Of victory, did, it, did it surprise <laughs> it you? It did surprise me. Uh, Why I, did that happen then, do you think? Well... I don't want to cause offence to Deputy Trott, but he was quite arrogant in his speech. And I think that alienated people. Some of the things he, he was saying about about his experience and, you know, uh, and I think that may have alienated some, particularly the newer members. I, 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 I always go into a, a fight aiming to win. I, I hoped I was going to win him by a uh, win, but I expected to win by a few votes. I didn't expect a, a two to one. And... I would put it down more, not to my ability, but the fact that um, uh, uh, Lyndon's approach in the presentation probably put some people off. So uh, I, I would, uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say uh, I, I was a stunning candidate and therefore outshone Deputy, Deputy Trot completely. I suspect it was a, a bit of an own goal, own goal on his part. And so now you, you're the president of, of that committee. What are your main objectives uh, as, as president of that committee, what do you hope to have achieved by the well, end of the I, state's well, term? It, it almost goes back to why did I join the states in the first place? I joined the states in the first place because friends and family intervened and said, Carl, you know, you just sold off your last company in Asia, you're footloose and fancy free, you keep on complaining about the government of Guernsey, why don't you do something about it? Okay, so that brings me in as, as a member of the public concerned about the way the island was developing. But then you look back at my career and what I've done in the past and also my character. And I'm very much a macro guy, a long-term strategic thinker, macro. 
and I want to change the system to make it better, make it function better. Uh, it'll never be perfect, but how can we improve it? And before the election, I, I think I probably spoke to you about it, I, I was thinking about taking on the scrutiny role. But I knew then after the election that my election campaign would have me viewed as being a bias. And I wouldn't, although I wouldn't, I would have brought, uh, done scrutiny with an even hand. I, I, I would have, um, uh, uh, there would be a perception there that would make it difficult for me to elect to that post. The reason I wanted scrutiny was I wanted scrutiny to be a lot stronger and to help improve government by recommending changes. I took SAC as, a, or went for the SAC position as a second choice because it approaches from a different angle. It, again, it influences the structure of government, the function of government, but rather than using it through a critique and recommended changes, it actually goes and tries to design mechanisms and recommend that me members adopt it. So you actually steer, and I'm actually finding that SAC is probably a better tool for me, a place to me to be. It's certainly a less negative role, uh, because obviously scrutiny role is often perceived to be a negative, and I'm perceived to be a negative enough already. I don't need any more. Um, these the, the SAC role is actually turning out to be very, very challenging, very interesting, and I'm hoping that SAC can help nudge the states. And again, I'm I'm not a revolutionary, and when we talk about executive government, we'll touch on this. I'm not looking to change it overnight, but I think that there are things that can be done through the Machinery Government Working Group, through SAC, that can fundamentally change and improve the way our states functions, the, the way our deputies function with the civil service, the accountability and the transparency that's there, the way that they operate together, and hopefully produce a, a more efficient and more effective government. So if you ask me what I'm hoping to achieve in SAC, it's that. And your role on that committee has, has led you to play a central role in, in the review of the machinery of government. Well, a central role. I'm one of the group, yes. But there's, there are only four political members on, on that group. It's a sm smaller group than has undertaken that work in the past. This is an attempt, is it not, not by you, for reasons we'll, we'll no doubt come on to, but an attempt by some members, particularly of the Policy and Resources Committee, to uh, introduce a form of executive or cabinet government, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, I mean, I, I, they've probably been talking about executive government in Guernsey ever since there was a government. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a conversation had in the background. And um, invariably, the people in charge would love to be have executive powers because they'd be less fettered by the the, the nature of, of committees and executive government. Um, and uh, yes, I think it is part of a push in that direction. But I personally, despite the fact that I've been an executive all my life, I took on my first executive role responsible for hiring and firing staff at 21 years old. I set up my first company, investment research company, owned by myself, 100% by myself, in Hong Kong when I was 24. So I have spent my entire life in executive positions and became, you know, very quite senior in my roles in the finance industry for big organisations. So I've been through that. But one of the things I learned in my first 18 months in government is that government is not a business. We don't hire executives. I was headhunted by companies in America and, and Asia because of my skills and my proven ability. We don't hire deputies on that basis, and nor should we. What I would never want to see is a, de a state made up of 40 people like me, because 
we wouldn't be representative of the community. You want the full gamut of skills and backgrounds, of knowledge, experience in there, so that all segments of our society feel represented by the government. So you don't want a whole bunch of executives running the island because they'll be out of touch with the people and they'll very quickly run into issues. You, so, you are opposed to the introduction of, of what is more properly referred to as cabinet or ministerial I, government. Well, I, really, I think we could get you? there, but I would look at it being... I, wouldn't, I would say there needs to be at least three terms in between because, again, it's not just uh, what your issues are. On the face of it, if you just say, right, fine, each of the people who wants the executive government generally views themselves as being the executive. But what happens if there's a scandal or a problem just before an election and we elect seven outspoken radical leaders who take over our... I, I, I have visions of somebody in America who was recently in a very senior role. Seven of those running our executive committees and making execu uh, our, our principal committees and making executive decisions for four years with hundreds of millions of pounds at play. The damage that could be done in a four-year period is immense. So, fine, before you introduce those executive powers, what are the checks and balances? How do you get them out of that position? Boris Johnson has done some foolish things recently and his party has the power to remove him if they think his continued role is damaging for the country. We don't have that. We'd have to introduce something. So we have a recall election capability of the people of another thing that's been spoken of for many years. The idea of the public can sign a petition and, and call for a new election to take somebody out of the states. Great. Now politicians will never make controversial decisions. GST will never get mentioned again because there'll be a recall election to take you out of the equation. And you end up with a government that does what's popular but not necessarily what's right or necessary. Do you have split the government and say, OK, we'll have 10 people in the executive, we'll have 30 people in the parliament and give the parliament the power to, take, uh, uh, to remove the executive, a, a bit like a motion of no confidence in the committee now in our system. Great. But now... Parliament, are they going to be looking for any opportunity to remove the government? Not so much because they're doing a bad job, but because they want to be the government. They want to be the executive. So, the uh, and scrutiny. Our scrutiny functions in Guernsey. Each one of us in the Assembly is a scrutineer as part of its job. We, every day we sit in that Assembly, we are actually swapping hats. We are being one minute... When we discuss a policy letter and the amendments attached to it, we are the Parliament. We are scrutinising the policy recommendation. We are scrutinising amendments and approving them. Once amendments are finalised and presented uh, to be a general debate and finally be voted on, we take a put on the hat of the executive because we, in aggregate, become the executive. We make an executive. And then when we discuss, as we did with the Sexual Offences Ordinance, we're actually just talking about matters of law. We are the legislature. So we have that kind of strange role. But if you take it out and you start saying, well, actually, no, you've now got an executive. Well, that means you need an opposition or a parliament who will act as the scrutineers. But then they've got to have more powers to scrutinise and, and question. You're not necessarily going to get more efficient government, but you're certainly going to get more, more con contentious government. Given what you've said, I, I think it's unlikely you're going to vote for a cabinet system in this state. But d is this state, do you think, more likely than any states previously? to endorse moving towards a more ministerial or cabinet be, system. Be, Do you be, get that sense amongst be, your I, colleagues? I, I, certainly much. Well, of course, I've only had experience of two terms. Uh, I think this states would be more inclined than the last to go uh, to consider that route. But 
most people would expect me to be endorsing executive uh, government because of my background. I think you'll find that because there are more business-like assembly, that they will look at the business risks uh, and associated with and the structure, the checks and balances required, and realise that a dramatic jump from where we are now with a system that's been working for many, many, many decades, uh, uh, even centuries, in its evolution, jumping from that to executive in one go would be extremely difficult to do. Very hard to produce checks and balances that are proportionate with the executive powers. I, what I would like to see is probably an evolutionary move that says, let's give a little bit more discretion to committees to actually make decisions and not bring them back to the Assembly. Should the Assembly vote on everything? Or should we give a little bit more power to the uh, committees? Should the president of the committee, which at the present moment is only a spokesperson for the committee, they don't have any powers beyond... Being president of the committee doesn't give them a, a carrying vote or anything else. They are just one vote on a committee of five. You know, maybe we want to give them a carry vote. Maybe we want to give them a slightly more powers or power responsibility, but within constraints. Uh, I can see things like that happening, which might make the assembly more efficient and more focused on real policy issues rather than trying to, you know, potentially micromanage operational matters. Because sometimes you get things brought to the form which would definitely fall under uh, uh, the banner of operational. And I, I, I would favour that, I'd re, an evolutionary move towards a little bit more, a bit more powers delegated that increase efficiency and focus. But no, I am unlikely to be persuaded to go straight to a cabinet with executive powers, a ministerial government or something like that, for all the reasons I've given. Before the states come to that debate about the system of government, you've got to debate tax policy public spending that looks like it's going to be this summer very briefly can you outline your position going into a debate which we we pretty certain is going to include proposals for gst and major reform to social security um yes sorry um right I raised this previously when we discussed the tax debate, and I'll be coming at this from the same angle again. We're asking the wrong question. We have got a state of Guernsey where it's going through the same, a similar evolution to many other countries, where it is becoming what I refer to as a nanny state. Uh, anybody's got a problem with any variety at all, it, well, I want the government to fix it for me. And also a state that wants to interfere in people's lives, tell them what they think, what they say, how they say it, you know, to a very large extent. The problem is there's a cost associated with that. Do, do you have examples of that? Which, um, which either the, the first states you were in or, or this states have done? What things would you roll back if you were rolling back the nanny state, as you call it, to try to reduce expenditure? What would you roll back? Which services would you not provide, which are currently provided? I think there are... I, I don't want to give specific examples at the moment because I, I, I could do without another lynch mob hunting me down because the problem you've got is every benefit or service you talk about, there's always a recipient who really thinks that is... To them, that's the most important thing government does because they are a direct recipient of it. So it's very hard to come down with specifics without starting to balance it with what else is in the equation. Uh, but... You'll know that every state's meeting, there are either policy letters or amendments 
that ultimately involve more expenditure and more often more civil servants being hired or more civil servants being handed work. And what I want to do is turn the conversation around. As individuals, we have to live within our means. Every one of us would like to have the lifestyle of the rich and shameless. But as soon as you start costing that out, you realise you can't and you start compromising your expectations to meet what you can afford or you start working hard to earn more money to be able to achieve more. The States of Guernsey, I would like to have a good discussion about the size and style of government. Because if you go back to my father and grandfather's day, they never expected us to provide all the services and benefits of the UK. They expected a government to provide them with security, uh, opportunity for employment, uh, you know, police force, a rule of law, and things like that. They didn't expect that uh, every aspect of your life would be influenced and any negative you face would be dealt with by the government. We've got to make a decision what we want, what we want in the future. And I want to shift the conversation away from how much tax do we need to pay for what we've got to actually how can we do what we do differently or possibly, and this way it gets really controversial, what things do we stop doing? The Policy and Resources Committee are talking about a gap of perhaps £80 million per year in the difference between what is currently being raised through taxation and, and what is likely to have to be spent given demographic change if there isn't a serious uh, retrenchment in some of our services. But are you saying you think Guernsey, the states could cut expenditure on, on services or on staff by so many tens of millions of pounds that it might be possible to avoid any of the tax options which policy and resources are putting together? If you have the conversation first about what size and style of government, will will I be willing to pay more tax? Absolutely. But I want to have it constrained by a size and style of government. The danger we've got now is every meeting there's somebody who stands up and comes up with a new idea to spend money. Or I've often heard deputies say, they got it in the UK, we must have it here. So we are saying there's a shortfall projected for the future. It's not here yet, but it is coming. And somebody has to. Somebody at some stage is going to have to make hard decisions about that, and it's falling to us. Right. But the problem, danger you've got, and, and one of the reasons I particularly don't like GST, although in many ways it is arguably the better tax option, is... You have this kind of creep in size and scale of government and its influence, its nanny state uh, interventions. All of that costs money. We raise taxes now to pay for what we've got today projected forwards. But then we carry on growing the influence and size of the state. And later on, somebody goes, you know what, 8% GST. Uh, We've got all these extra bills and all these other things we want to give. This group over here wants this. This group over there wants that. Let's make it 10%. And that's what happened with VAT in the UK and is continuing to happen. And I don't want to go down that pathway. You need to have a decide about what you want government to be. And I I would happily pay higher taxes for a better than average systems, you know, you know, but you define that size first and then any future proposals to increase the scope of government get challenged by, does that go beyond the scope of the size and style of government we've agreed? Fine. Maybe we don't approve it on that basis. Or if we are going to approve it, how are you going to pay for it?
What else do you have to compromise somewhere else? But again, when you talk about cutting direct costs or expenditure, yes, you might say some services, I tell you what, we're not going to pursue that anymore. There are things that big countries do that maybe we don't need to do in Guernsey. Then there are also other ways of doing things. You hear it said often, and it is not far from the truth, that we don't have enough civil servants. Or is that because we're trying to do too many things? Uh, you know, you've got to, you haven't got enough staff um, uh, to to uh, again look at it from a corporate perspective. If a company was finding that they were potentially making a loss and uh, their staff were overworked, they wouldn't turn around and say, "Let's just up the price of our product; the customer will bear it." No, they'd turn around and say, "Let's rationalise the business, get rid of the elements of the business we don't, which are not core." and trim our business down. And if our staff are overworked, we can either hire more staff or we can reduce the work by trimming the business down. So what I would want to look at is what can we contract out? What can we do service level agreements with the third sector? Let's get the third sector involved where we can cut out the bureaucracy and the administration of the civil service, get the civil service focusing on other deliverables and instead just monitor an agreement with a third party to deliver. It could be limited companies. It could be private companies contracted to deliver services. It could be the third sector who are given money by the state and, and, and assistance to deliver services. We have a nasty habit of drawing everything into the centre and trying the states trying to do everything. And that in itself is a risk because you end up being a jack of all trades and a master of none. But the Policy and Resources Committee is saying even if there is some public service reform, as, as they call it, uh, which includes some outsourcing, you, the demographic problem that we have a shrinking working population and a significantly increasing uh, pensioner population is going to put this huge pressure on, on public finances. So you know that they are going to propose uh, very substantial tax increases this summer. Are you saying that you are going to put an alternative route map before the states in that debate rather than just opposing GST or opposing whatever significant tax raising measure they come forward with? Are, are you working on or are you prepared to give consideration to, to leading or making a big contribution to a, a completely alternative route map for resolving this problem in public finances? I, I have been discussing that with some deputies but I've also been having an open conversation with policy and resources and there are changes in the corporate tax world happening in Dubai and Cayman Islands at the moment that could have an impact on us. I don't think we've turned over all the stones yet on how we could drive revenue. So you're absolutely right. We have a demographic time bomb we're heading towards. But part of that problem is the fact that uh, uh, possibly where we are taking on too much and doing too much as a government, and we could thin that down, which would help offset part of the tax increases. I think it's inevitable we will see tax increases for no other reason than COVID has depleted our rainy day fund. It rained, it's gone. So just for that reason alone, and a capital expenditure, the real killer is on a cash basis, we're not doing too badly. We're actually positive. But on we are allowing our infrastructure to deteriorate, and that's going to require massive investment in the future, as well as the ageing of the population and the shifting of the demographics. So there's a whole lot of things coming on. But I want to look at the whole thing in the round. I want to look at corporate tax. I want to look at developments elsewhere. Uh, um, uh, uh, say, different ways of delivering things that can reduce costs. 
possibly not doing some things and saying, actually, we don't need that. We're in this size of island, we don't need it. Or we'll contract somebody else to do it. There's other things we can do. And I want to have that conversation first. Is there a group of deputies active trying to put together alternative proposals to, to policy and resources? Or are all the deputies who at the present time saying we're not going to support GST uh, at the present time and in its present form, are you all acting independently and disparately or are you trying to marshal your resources together to put I, I, up a, a I would say the challenge. the coffee and lunchtime conversations is dominated by this. This is going to be the biggest issue facing our island this term and will have a massive impact on the island going forward. So it is definitely dominating. And to some extent, you have to wait for PNR to lay a proposal because you can't have pro- land, lay a counter-proposal to a proposal you haven't seen. And of course, policy and resources is currently in the consultation process with the public, etc., the engagement process to discuss this. Now, they have signalled in broad headlines what they're looking at doing. But policy and resources are being very open to people like me who have stayed right. I've, I, what I'm saying now is I said this a year ago. And I've been saying it consistently. My position hasn't changed. We're, we're asking the wrong question. We're approaching for the wrong business, a direction. If this was a business, you would annualise it in a different way. You wouldn't just whack the price of the product up. You'd look at consolidating the business. My final question on tax. But, so, but just going back to your comment, though, I, uh, PNR is engaging with us. Uh, I've had co- private conversations. I know other deputies have. So this is ongoing. And and. I think PNR is listening to this, this the, the fact that maybe we're having the wrong conversation or wrong time to have this conversation. The piece brought, uh, brought out by three members of the Economic Development Committee uh, they, they in the last couple of days in the press. You know, is this the right time to be talking about this and, and potentially burdening the economy in a recovery phase? There's a whole load of issues. So I would say that PNR is not dogmatically pursued because it's portrayed as, as you know, PNR is going to do it. Mark Helly is the poster boy for GST. Mark Helly isn't. Um, he has been very open-minded in conversations with people like me. Uh, whilst he is, because of the role he's taken on in PNR, he is the person who has to stand up and speak to these things. He is not being dogmatic. He is not trying to drive us down the path. I think he is listening, and I think that we will see um, uh, uh, hopefully a different conversation if we head into the debate. My final question on tax is if the Policy and Resources Committee digs itself in to the extent that it proposes GST because it sincerely believes that's the right option even though it knows the vast majority of other deputies are opposed and if it loses heavily in the states do you agree with Deputy Charles Parkinson who has said in those circumstances the Policy and Resources Committee should go? No. Uh, and, and I would say no because why would you remove a committee that had the guts to bring up something and fight for it even though it's massively unpopular? Uh, I, I mean, I look to myself and my recent uh, uh, amendment and things I've done. I didn't do them to be popular. I did them because I thought they were right. So PNR would have my respect for having taken the fight, even though I'd probably be one of the people on the opposite side of the decision that would help, uh, would potentially be voting against it and defeating it. But I, I still respect them for raising the issue and having a conversation because it's a difficult conversation. And they haven't been getting much of pats, many pats on the back for having brought it, but they deserve them. Uh, let's finish with three or four 
quick fire questions. I hope that, that they're quite simple. Um, what is the political achievement you're most proud of in your six years in the States and why? Probably uh, championing island-wide voting. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Furbrush and myself were, uh, Deputy Furbrush and I were the ones who, who led that, but I think Deputy Furbrush would admit that uh, he, he gave the speeches, I did most of the work. Uh, and it definitely is something that was close to my own heart because I saw that as one of these macro ways of changing the way the island, because I saw when I joined the States, it was very parochial with deputies voting on a parish basis. And I wanted to be an island as a whole, as a country in its own right, vote and people looking outwards at the bigger issues rather than inwards to a parish level. And I saw that island-wide voting would achieve that. I also think it will lead to an evolution of parties. It will change the nature of the manifesto and its importance. In elections, it would move away from personality. For all those reasons, island-wide voting uh, is probably, uh, you know, Again, I, I'm not, I can't take sole responsibility, but I certainly help lead it. And being, uh, that would, I, I would think, I'm the thing I'm most proud of so far. And your biggest regret, and why? Uh, at least once a week, having ever stood. <laughs> um, uh, biggest regret. I, I, I think I think there's always numerous regrets, debates you didn't win, uh, arguments you could have put better, uh, things you would like to revisit. I, I, I find it hard to uh, support one amongst uh, amongst many failings. Uh, I think the frustration of being a deputy is difficult to deal with. Um, and what's the hardest part of the role? for you is dealing with that frustration it is the fact how slow and difficult it is to change something that's an institution with hundreds of years of tradition that you're dealing with a peer group in the assembly that is a diverse cross-section of society and i think it is a representative or my maybe not on sexes but on on backgrounds it's representative of the community um, and trying to get a consensus and get people to move forward together is very, very difficult. Having said which, that's one of our strengths as well, in that it reduces risk of, of extraordinary things being done and, 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 and doing damage. So, yeah, the hardest part of being a deputy is the frustration. And finally, when you eventually leave politics, what do you hope you will look back on and have achieved? I hope that I will have helped to influence systemic change that results in a more effective and more efficient government that is a bit more transparent, a bit more accountable to the public and gets things done. And that, that, that'll be, if I can walk away from, from my time in the States, whenever that might be, and I, I can you know, put my hat on and think, you know, I'm leaving it better than when I arrived. I'll be a happy man. Deputy Carl Meovell, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bailiwick Express podcast. The title track was Shift My Weight by Luna. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe and share. Remember, you can always hit bailiwickexpress.com to stay right up to date with what's happening in the Bailiwick. You can find us online, on social, on email and on internet radio. There'll be more from me, Matt Falaise, and all the Bailiwick team next week.